Hello and welcome to the Derelict Thoughts podcast. I'm Derek James, your host. I'm flying solo today. Uh, this is episode number two, recorded on June 25th, 2023. Today I want to talk some more about artificial intelligence and LLMs, but uh, I'm hoping this podcast won't just be... I mean, I don't want this podcast to just be artificial intelligence. I have lots of other interests. For example, this weekend, we thought there was going to be a civil war in Russia, maybe. And there were some very strange events where the leader of a uh, private militia group, a mercenary group on behalf of Russia, uh, seemed to turn against them, was marching towards Moscow, and then turned around at the last minute supposedly by a deal brokered with the president of Belarus. Uh, the whole thing was very strange. Um, I'm not really very confident that I know enough about the situation to really talk about it, but I do hope on this podcast from time to time to talk about current events and maybe some politics. I'm not crazy about politics, but uh, sometimes it may be worthwhile to talk about. Uh, other, I'm primarily interested in science, technology, uh, fiction, Science fiction, fantasy, uh, movies, television, philosophy, those sorts of things. So uh, I'm hoping to talk about all those kinds of things, hopefully get some other guests. Uh, I have two co-hosts um, and would like in general to do more podcasts with them uh, where we're talking about these sorts of things. But today I want to kind of revisit some of the topics we were talking about last time and also, in the meantime, in the last two weeks, I've watched a debate uh, on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes between uh, Grady Booch and Connor Leahy, which is a debate about the existential risk of artificial intelligence given uh, new developments. I mean, in general, but specifically in relation to new developments. And um, I watched that, and I've watched quite a few other things related to artificial intelligence the last two weeks. I've also done some more experimentation on my own, uh, which I'll talk about towards the end of the podcast. But I primarily want to talk about this debate and some of the things that came up because they touched on some of the things I, uh, me and Philip were talking about last week. And like I said, I will post the link to YouTube in the show notes but first, my overall uh, impressions, well, first of all, Connor Leahy, I've seen him on a couple of other uh, podcasts. He's sort of making the rounds, talking about uh, AI and existential uh, threat, the existential threat of AI. And he's sort of a, the other, I think the other sort of high profile person who's who's really out they're going on podcasts and things is uh, on behalf of this topic is uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who comes across as a little more kind of arrogant and in some ways and not very relatable. And I don't think he, I think he tends to use a lot of jargon and talk over people's heads. So he's maybe not the best representative for that point of view. I find Leahy quite a bit better. He's certainly a lot more humble and his his just his style and his demeanor is generally better. But, uh, I mean, they say some of the same things in terms of actual substance. So, But I think it, 
in terms of sort of a a somebody who's really going out there advocating this point of view. Now there are higher profile people such as Stuart Russell, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, Max Tegmark, some of these, and they and they're quite good as well. But you know, um, anyway, I have seen Leahy on quite a few videos. Uh, I think he's pretty good. This was I think the first time I'd ever seen Grady Booch, and he's uh, you know he's he's uh, a software architect and he's got a ton of experience in a lot of different areas of software and AI. So, you know, he should be taken seriously. And I was hoping he would have, I'm always looking in these debates for good reasons to be more cautious about my uh, conclusions about what this technology can do and about what the potentials for it and where I might be going wrong. So I'm particularly interested in listening to critics, but hmm, <laughs> he did not come across well to me. I found his overall tone uh, very condescending, uh, belittling, uh, Especially the first part, it was just a lot of sort of name dropping. I worked with so and so. I worked with so and so. Sort of an appeal to authority. There was there wasn't a lot of meat on the bone in terms of actual substance of criticism. There was more of that in the latter half of the debate. But even then, I found throughout, I found him very. Uh, I don't mind confrontation. I think confrontation is important and calling people out on things calling things like they are, but I think there were a lot of rhetorical devices that were used that were not, that were sort of beneath the subject and were um, not useful or constructive, and I found him just kind of generally rude. Leahy, I don't know, he was very gracious and uh, deferential to Booch, so in some sense he came across better, but he, I mean, he definitely came across better you know, came out looking better uh, as a debater and kind of a human being. But I thought he was almost too deferential. Um, I mean, I would have I would have called Booch out on some of the stuff that that he that he was saying. Um, and just just he was just being out and out rude at, at certain points. One of the main examples of this I found was that he kept saying that people who are afraid uh, well, <laughs> people who are raising the alarm about existential race, uh, uh, risk of AI are are motivated by fear, which is kind of, on the one hand, is almost sort of ir- not irrelevant, but it's obvious. It, it's kind of an ad hominem. It doesn't really say anything about the merits of the arguments, whether or not AI is a risk, uh, what its current potentials are, what its future potentials are, what the future potential risks are, all of that's somewhat irrelevant. Now, if you think the person is motivated by fear and it's completely clouding their judgment, I mean, that's fine, but that should show up in their arguments. And um, they either have evidence and arguments or they don't. And those are the things that either have merit or don't. Uh, Just saying somebody's motivated by fear is not constructive or useful, and it's it's either ad hominem or bordering on ad, uh, ad hominem. And Leahy's response to that was fairly good. He said, you know, people who think that 
see something as an existential threat are motivated by fear. Again, the relevance, uh, it's irrelevant to the, the merits of their argument unless the fear is making them make bad arguments or somehow making them concoct evidence that isn't there. And if there is a threat, and it is a large threat, you would be pretty irrational not to be afraid. So it's, it's just a non-starter. It's a complete non-starter. I mean, as an example, you could just as easily counter that by saying, well, your position seems to be motivated by out of your emotional response, you know, naive optimism or recklessness or whatever. Uh, you know, you can make the same charge that the other person is being motivated primarily on the basis of emotion. And that doesn't, that doesn't get us anywhere, right? Like either their arguments are compelling, either the evidence is sound, or it's not, right? It doesn't really matter whether what they're motivated by unless it's impinging on the merits of the case and so anyway um i found that uh, pretty lame and <laughs> I, and he and he repeated it over and over so anyway when we did get to the meat of things again i found there was sort of very little meat on the bone here um booch seemed to be making arguments that LLMs in their he seemed to be arguing against LLMs in their current state which is a bit of a bait and switch um i mean yeah of course current uh, uh, LLM models can't they're not they're not as implemented uh, agentive like they're not embodied um they're passive as implemented and to the extent that they have to they require a prompt in order to generate an output however as he probably knows and it didn't come up in the in the discussion there are open source versions and there are tools that interface with the closed source versions that allow you to extend these models to be agentive i mean there's already quite a few examples there's Examples of these LLMs being hooked up to play Minecraft to act as a sort of desktop assistants and, and, and carry out you know, autonomous actions. Now, how well do they do that? Well, I, I haven't really dug too much into the Minecraft example, but the point is <laughs> it, they're not embodied or agentive, but it doesn't take the biggest imaginative leap to to see how they would be and could be and to a limited extent already are, right? So it's a little bit strange to be arguing that, that you know, a system or a, a, a new technology, a reasonably new technology as is will never, you know, achieve capacities beyond its current current ones. That's very very strange um so he talked he he made a very definitive statement a very uh broad statement very early on booch did that llms were incapable of reasoning so i found that very strange too so he talked about different last last week or last time on a podcast we talked about 
um, how these models are able to generalize, they're able to summarize, they're able to analogize. Um, without going too much into a deep dive of the semantics of what reasoning is, uh, just broadly, it's a, a you know, it's related to problem solving, right? Like it's taking information, a situation or a scenario presented or a question or a problem and working through the available information and your experience and step by step coming up with some kind of conclusion, right? Some kind of, I guess, hypothesis or, um, or answer, to what's going on. I mean, that's, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pr pretty mushy, but you know, it's a hard, it's, it's hard to define, but we have a sense of what it is. I, to me, and there are different types. There's deductive, there's inductive in, in, in sort of formal, more sort of formal logic. Uh, he was going on and on about abductive reasoning, which I hadn't really heard much about, but he sort of ignored deduction indu and induction. And, this was to me sort of a case of of kind of cherry picking, right? Like to him, that's what reasoning is. He was saying abductive reasoning, which he, as I recall, defined somewhat as building a theory of the world, building a, a, a test, a model against which you can test your hypotheses, right? And I and I want to say, because to me he wasn't particularly clear about this, I want to say one of his big hang-ups was this idea that there's not recurrency, that these are, these are feed-forward models, these are feed-forward networks, which again, <laughs> uh, Leahy pushed back a little bit against that. I don't understand the technical aspects well enough to really argue whether these things, they have, a, they have at least a pseudo-recurrency in them because... You know, you're you're taking output and context and feeding it back in in some kind of loop, right? Um, whether or not that's true, recurrency is certainly not recurrency in the strictly defined in the architecture. They're trained with backpropagation, which only works on feedforward networks. Well, actually, I think there are some ways to uh, to use backpropagation on recurrent networks, but um, I don't know a ton about that. But but I, but I think it is technically possible it may not be efficient enough to really work but anyway uh i i think that i i get the sense that that's really a hang-up for him is that these 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 that maybe that's one of the core hang-ups for him is that these models don't have recurrency they don't have a feedback loop built in and so he doesn't really he i think he thinks he, he brought up consciousness and sentience and and uh, and self-reflection these sorts of concepts in the context of talking about how these things were incapable of reasoning and i think i mean he's right that human brains have we have tons of recurrency right uh in the in the neocortex and it we don't know exactly what role it plays um he did bring up jeff hawkins said he was a big fan uh, i'm also a fan of uh, on intelligence hawkins book his hypothesis is that um, you know, the neocortex is a memory prediction framework and that the feedback connections are there. Um, th th when we have a mismatch basically between forward prediction and backward evidence that we get, that's when learning occurs. I believe I'm 
saying that roughly right. If I'm not, you know, sorry, you can <laughs> read the book or correct me. But um, anyway, it's a it's sort of a clash between top down and bottom up. Not strictly when we talk about top down and bottom up, but like he anyway, he's got this whole theory about what the recurrency in the neocortex is is for. Other people have uh, ideas as well. Um, LLMs don't have that strictly in their architecture. But again, you know, I don't know the extent to which it would be difficult to incorporate recurrency into current models in some way, like explicitly in the architecture. I know there's lots of ways to extend and add on and, and talked about this last time, augment these models with tools. You can give them memories. You can you can sort of hook them up to smaller systems that do have recurrency, right? And whether or not recurrency needs to be a primary feature of the larger system, I don't know. Like I've amended my my views of what I've had to amend my views of what's capable what certain uh, systems are capable of with certain types of architectures. And I'm, I'm much less confident now with, with the new technologies coming out about what's necessary for certain behaviors to to be, you know, uh, the capacity of, of a system. So, uh, you know, I don't, I'm I, before I would have said, knowing what I know about neuroscience, which isn't a ton, but I would have, I would have sort of leaned it leaned into what Booch was saying about recurrency and it being probably a necessary um, aspect to to human-like intelligence and problem-solving and reasoning. But I I've just become more agnostic about that because I don't I don't know what's necessary, and I and I and I'm much less. I'm more reluctant to make strong claims about what's necessary to achieve certain things in cognitive frameworks than I used to be. So, um, anyway, he was beating the drum about abductive reasoning. Now, I he didn't give any examples that I remember about specific failures. And, you know, other people, when they've criticized the GPT models, they give they sometimes give specific examples. Uh, failures. I don't remember any in this one, which was disappointing because it would be nice to be able to hear sort of back and forth on the specific failures and, you know, why. Um, Why he thought, you know, him making a strong claim that it's incapable of this type of reasoning. So anyway, um, I looked up some various examples of uh, abductive reasoning tasks. and, And so one example was um, you, I mean, you have scenario. Basically, you have scenarios uh, where there's uh, sparse evidence. There's not. Uh, there's. You're sort of piecing together again, like a hypothesis, a theory based on facts in the world that are incomplete, and and it's probabilistic, and you're not sure which what what theory is right, and maybe you're putting different weights on different theories. So anyway. One example that I came across was, um, you know, you come home and to an empty house, but there's a steaming bowl of soup on the kitchen table, all right? So and maybe you call out and nobody answers. All right, so given this, um, this situation, this evidence, you can draw 
maybe a number of different conclusions, right? Um, you can, depending on who you live with, if you <laughs> if you live with anybody, if it's kind of a Goldilocks in the bear scenario or something like that, maybe somebody broke in. If you live alone, maybe somebody broke in, made themselves a bowl of soup, thought, you know, decided, or it was a homeless person who who was hungry and for whatever reason they, they got scared or startled and left or or it was a thief who was going to rob you and instead made a bowl of soup. I, I don't know. You could, if you do live with people, I mean, that obviously increases the likelihood that it was somebody that you live with, especially if you didn't, you know, if that's the only evidence you have, there's no other signs of forced entry or, or things missing. Uh, that, you know, somebody in your family made a bowl of soup, maybe got a, um, maybe got an emergency phone call or something like that and had to, had to leave in an instant. People don't normally leave a steamed bowl of soup on the table uneaten. So, you know, your, your theory that you build is based on your knowledge of, of general scenarios that are similar to this, to human psychology, to, you know, the fact that soup gets cold and that if it's still steaming, it hasn't been there very long, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you have to have quite a bit of knowledge about the world and is and also psychology and motivations to, to, to you know, build this theory about what might have happened, right? Um, so anyway, I just, you know, while I was listening to the debate, I paused it. I went over to chat GPT. I asked the question. You know, uh, roughly the same format. If you came home to find a steaming bowl of soup on a kitchen table in an empty house, what kind of conclusions could you draw? And it gave me it gave me a list of like six different scenarios, and they were among among them were the, some of the ones I mentioned. <laughs> there were others, you know, and the and it talked about which ones were more likely and which ones were less likely, and so on and so forth. And so, you know. You can you can kind of move the goalposts and say, well, you know, okay, so it produced this answer that seems like it's capable of this type of reasoning, but it's not really doing that type of reasoning. <laughs> but I think you need, you know, there's sort of just this functional aspect to to a system that if it if it you know, if an airplane flies or a bulldozer bulldozes or, you know, a submarine, you know, successfully navigates water or if a calculator, you know, in the, in the realm of information processing calculates the correct answer, I mean, you can say a calculator doesn't calculate, doesn't do math the way a human does math, but it is calculating, right? Um, I mean, its functional output is that it, it, it took the input necessary to do the calculation. It processed the information in a way that produced an answer that was correct. So, um, you know, there's alternatives to how there's the Chinese room, right, which I'm not going to dive completely into. But you could have just a giant lookup table of every possible uh good response to every possible query or every prompt and you could just have you know an, a near infinite list of all possible questions scenarios etc and a lookup table that just says if 
you know, if you're asked this, respond in this way. And that's a dumb system, right? Like that system can produce output that looks like it's intelligent, but all it's doing is just a simple lookup, right? I mean, we have to be careful that these sort of systems aren't doing something like that. Uh, you know, like in a video game, you interact with an NPC, right? A non-player character. And so, you know, you walk up to somebody in a village who's a merchant in a video game and you say, you know, what do you have for sale? And the merchant starts crying and they're like, oh, my wife left me and my crops were destroyed. So I don't have any inventory or whatever. All I've got is this, you know, log for sale or something like that. Anyway, you could infer that the NPC is an agent, is intelligent, um, is sentient, has emotions, has an actual wife, has feelings about their wife. But nobody really does that because we know that they're programmed in this, their, their range of behavior is, is very narrow and scripted. And uh, we know how they're generally how they're created and how their behavior is created. So we don't uh, attribute, you know, high level cognition to them. And we have to be careful with these LLMs that we're not sort of being fooled, that it's, um, it's fluency with natural language isn't an illusion uh, that's, you know, tugging at our emotional strings or, or, or fooling us in some way that it's doing things other than it's doing. But um, that said, the dimensionality of, of having, you know, an infinite, near-infinite lookup table of every possible question or even just sort of fuzzy matches for every possible question is sort of computationally impossible. So, so we know that's not what's going on. And the systems are very, very robust to the form of the question and... Uh, different variations in the way the prompts look and they're doing that well enough to where I'm I'm not certain I'm with Leahy who was more agnostic about what's going on inside of these things they they certainly act as if they have internal models about the world physics in the world human psychology to a large extent and they're outputting responses that that very much seem like they're drawing upon a fairly rich model, fairly rich models of the world. And that could be an illusion, but without hard evidence about, you know, that they're just, they're doing something very, very sort of dumb. And without any kind of evidence that they're, they're, that, they're not sort of constructing a model of last time talked about uh, like an elephant or a shoe or you know whatever sunshine right like they that they've built up a complex model of these things and are drawing upon that when they're doing their next token uh, prediction in the absence of evidence that they're that's exactly how they're working. I'm going to remain somewhat agnostic about it. Um, and the fact that their own engineers <laughs> aren't very forthcoming about, well, they're actually say they, they don't completely understand how they're doing what they're doing. So I don't think Booch knows. I, so I'm not willing 
to really buy that argument that because if the people who built it don't know whether or not it's drawing upon you know a complex internal model then i don't think booch knows right and i think he's leaning on this idea of the lack of recurrency or lack of similarity to biological brains uh pretty heavily and i don't find that all that compelling um and again the fact that that these systems can actually you know functionally do the kind of reasoning he says they can't do is a pretty good counterargument. Uh, some other examples of abductive reasoning I found were, or that are fairly common, are uh, you know a detective uh, who comes across a crime scene and there's you know there's lipstick on the cigarette and there's a bloody dagger and there's a whatever and there's a you know a scrap of paper in the fireplace with half a phone number on it and these sorts of things, and the detective has to sort of piece together from from incomplete information from the clues what the likely scenario was, who the likely suspect was, right? Um, in a similar vein, doctors that make a diagnosis based on symptoms that are maybe common symptoms or or even unusual symptoms. Um, anyway, the idea is that you have you have these these causal signs of, of things that are going on, but you don't know the root causes. You don't know the underlying. Uh, reasons why and you so you have to you have to sort of construct this theory about what's going on um those are two other you know fairly common examples and you know (laughs) these systems do that like they do it you can argue that um in every case they don't do it as well as experts as human experts but you are on super shaky ground when you say they can't you know, given clues or given symptoms or given sparse information that they can't describe likely scenarios and assign uh, probabilities to them. They, they can, they just can. You have, you only, you don't have to spend much time with the models to actually see that they do that. And then you're, if you're still going to make that argument that they're not that they are incapable of this form of reasoning you've got to take a different track you've got to basically argue that it looks like they're doing that but they really aren't because xyz and i'm i would think if you confronted booch with (laughs) with examples of chat gpt or gpt4 actually doing abductive reasoning he would I don't. He doesn't seem like the sort of guy who would um, throw up his hands and be like, "Oh, well, I was wrong. I was, mis- I, you know, I I wasn't aware that I, you know." Uh, my guess is he'd dig in and say, "You know, it's not really doing abductive reasoning. It's it's appearing to do it." Right? He called them stochastic parrots. Right? That's a very common phrase of critics. So. Anyway, I you know I leave it to you to come to your own conclusions about whether or not the extent to which you want to assign you know internal capabilities based on external behavior in this case, right? And like I said, there there are certainly cases where you know you could have a you could build a, a robot animal that cries and or is you know wags its tail when it's happy. It doesn't necessarily mean just because it's mimicking those external behaviors that its internal state 
is the same as a biological creature. And we, we can't be sure, you know, we can't be 100% with biological creatures that they're conscious or that they're feeling exactly what we're feeling. It's pretty reasonable for us to make that inference for for biological creatures based on what we know of the similarities between the the anatomy, right, and physiology of, of biological creatures. We're less certain when we're dealing with more kind of alien architectures, right? Even things that we may have built. In the case of neural networks, we build these things and we're not even we're not even completely sure how they're doing what they're doing. Like um, Yudkowsky uses the term inscrutable matrices. I think there's more to it, but <laughs> like the way um, artificial neural networks are instantiated now is basically like giant um, matrices of weights, right? And 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 one of the reasons why graphics processors are used for machine learning and are a hot commodity besides being used for video games and bitcoin mining is because they're they're highly efficient at matrix multiplication which is the main mathematical function that um, we're doing when we're um, training or activating very very large neural networks and so anyway we've basically got these giant you know, massive billions of parameters, matrices. And anybody who tells you they know exactly what they're doing or exactly what their capacities are based on their architecture and and not, you know, if they want to say they're functionally they're doing X, but really on the inside, they know that they're not doing what you think they're doing. I don't think I would put a lot of stock in what that person's saying. I think everybody needs to be hedging a little bit more about their certainty level about what these things are doing on the inside. And like I said, even their creators do. So um, that's good reason to give some pause. Um, but Booch seemed very, very certain, right? He seemed very certain. He knew what was going on. And um, anyway... The other, the other big area that sort of stuck out to me that they talked about, well, to Booch's credit, they didn't do, you know, he sort of hedged on this a little bit, but it was creativity. And we talked about it on the last episode, and I think I said something like, no matter what your definition of creativity or what your views on creativity, you have to admit that these models are capable of creativity, <laughs> which is apparently not true, because I don't think Booch thinks that they're capable of creativity. I don't think he came right out and declared that, but um, he said he would. He sort of urged the host to bring on, you know, people who are more experts on creativity, poets or writers or, um, you know, whoever. But to talk, which I'm not sure being a creative person makes you an expert in creativity per se or you know what's going on under the hood but um i mean it's not a it wouldn't be a bad idea to 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 listen to that sort of discussion but um you know i'm not an expert on creativity i have written some um creative writing 
some fiction. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of fiction and, to a lesser extent, poetry, but some. Uh, my undergraduate degree was English, so uh, yeah, I read a lot of literature, um, or a fair amount, anyway. And um, so I have some sense... I have at least, you know, some folk psychological sense of what creativity is. Uh, And, you know, it doesn't make me an expert. But, again, I really wish there had been more discussion of specific inputs, outputs, and uh, experimentation. Like people going in and doing things with the models and using those as examples. Because, you know, to me, I'm not sure creativity is necessarily pinned to originality i mean uh you know someone can be creative and not realize that what they're creating has already been created before um that doesn't mean they're not being creative right like it's um it's it's you you know it's it's using available resources combining them in a way right that is novel at least to you i don't think most people would consider that you're being creative if you are copying, like I, I think we, if, if you're sort of consciously copying what something that's already made that, that either you've made before that you know exists, right? But you know, generating novelty from your own perspective, um, either in creating art or in coming up with creative solutions to problems, um, I just I still don't see how. You know, you could plant the flag far enough back to say these with with any kind of certainty that these things are not generating, uh, you know, novel and interesting uh, solutions and 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 even art. And the host, I forget his name uh, in the podcast, but he was saying that he found the artistic the 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 prose generated by these models to be you know very i forget the word he used but you know lacking i, I don't know if he he was saying they're sort of robotic or or you know just miss, missing a soul and to me what's interesting about that so <laughs> i think in that case what i'd want to see is some sort of like double blind you know testing right like how much actually i think i saw a study um referenced on reddit a couple of weeks ago to the extent that um, when people knew that something was generated by chat gpt they were far more likely to uh, you know rate it lower in terms of of um artistic merit than if they knew it was created by a human right so i don't think I think if you're going to do that kind of analysis, like in a really uh, sort of disciplined way, uh, you need to be you need to be sort of hiding the source, right? Present people with with two writing samples or multiple, whatever. Present them with a writing sample and and just have them rate it, and don't tell them who wrote it, right? Um, and see what they think. Now, me even knowing that ChatGPT has is producing some of these things. You know, it's made me laugh. Uh, it's made me feel emotions, uh, and it's it's produced output that 
I think has artistic merit. Um, whether or not you need an artist behind uh, prose for it to have artistic merit, I mean, I don't. I guess I'm more of a, you know, behaviorist or functionalist or whatever you want to call it in that respect because I, I, to me, the end product is. Uh, it's, I mean. It's interesting to know how it was created, but if what you if if the creation itself is has you know it, it has in, some intrinsic merit. Some people now, I mean, there are schools of thought where writing is is not a monologue; it's a dialogue, right? It's a dialogue between the writer and the reader, and part of the reader's job is to learn about what the writer's trying to communicate and other clues might be things about the writer's life or their other views or things like that you know that a piece of literature is is what the reader brings to it but also what the writer brought to it when they were creating it and you know if that's sort of your school of thought i could see that um but (laughs) again Especially with humor, is to me is just a really interesting, um, an interesting domain, and it's very interesting to me that, I mean, if you had told me that an AI model was going to be producing things that weren't, you know, sort of unintentionally funny just because they sounded awkward and weird, and there is that. There's these videos of people, you know, like there's the the beer commercial where everything's on fire and. There's the Will Smith video of him eating spaghetti that are just kind of weird and surreal, and they're funny in that way. But but like legitimately funny because they not leg- they're funny. Be- other things being funny because they they're clever. They have some insight, right? So you know, last time we talked about uh, the writer strike had just started and Philip and I had were trying it we generated some snippets of late night monologues and um I don't remember specific jokes from those but there were things that were like if not on par with some of the current late night jokes they they weren't bad they were they were you know maybe mediocre but they weren't um they were they were passable, like they were passable jokes, right? And uh, Philip had written some Ted Lasso scenes, and he asked GPT, Chat GPT, to make it funnier, and it added more jokes and/or didn't just add more jokes. It sort of, I think, it changed the the contours of the language, right? And and he, you know, he found it, and I he sent it to me. I found it funnier than the previous uh example i generated uh original weird al yankovic songs and you know they weren't (laughs) they weren't the funniest thing in the world but they definitely were better than anything i could have come up with in that you know i mean it's producing these things almost instantaneously the output and you know not every stanza was hilarious but you can just sit there and you can hit, you know, you can uh, prompt prompt ChatGPT with the same output. You can ask it to improve. You can take specific stanzas and um, 
and modify those. And, you know, with that workflow, I think you probably could get something that's, you know, about as, I don't want to, you know, impugn Weird Al Yankovic, but probably something that's about as good as <laughs> some of his existing parodies, right? Um, for me, uh, I also, uh, in the past couple of weeks, uh, there was an example that I thought was pretty good where I asked ChatGPT to produce, to write the opening of a novel in the style of Cormac McCarthy. I don't know. If you don't know, Cormac McCarthy is a writer. He died recently, but he was the author of uh, No Country for Old Men and Blood Meridian and quite a few other books. Um, he's got kind of a, uh, you know, a, a specific, sparse, literary, uh, bleak, violent, um, style you know, I, I don't know if that's a reasonable assessment of sort of what his style is anyway uh the road he wrote the road which is quite good but depressing anyway so i asked it to write the opening of a novel in the style of Cormac mccarthy and it wrote this um a couple of paragraphs where basically it was sort of these uh these sort of wretched depressed band of people sort of marching across a barren pocked landscape you know uh, that had been decimated by um, environmental disaster of some kind so it was obviously sort of you know feeding off the road uh, as a main you know source so um, it wasn't amazing like it was it was fine um I don't think it was as good as what Cormac McCarthy himself would output. But again, anyway, as an exercise, I asked it to take what it had given me and rewrite it and make it funny. Because I thought it would be interesting to see how it would try to take one of the darkest, bleakest author's style and put a funny spin on it. And... You know, the opening was something about how the landscape looked like overcooked pizza or something like that. It wasn't the funniest thing in the world, but the the closing sentence of the sample was, uh, when life gives you a scorched earth, you might as well make s'mores. And I I laughed. I thought that was funny, right? I thought that was pretty funny. Maybe I'm... I have a bad sense of, you know, an underdeveloped sense of humor or something. But um, I thought that was actually pretty good. And, uh, of course, whenever there's something that's generated by ChatGPT that I I think is um, in- interesting, I Google it to try to make sure, at least do a first pass, you know, a sanity check that it's, it's not just outright plagiar- plagiarizing something. And I couldn't, I couldn't find anything that that was similar. I couldn't find anything through a Google search that was that same sentiment. So I thought I thought this idea that, you know, climate change you know, overheats the earth and we're just these sort of uh tormented, you know, all our crops are dead or because we can't grow anything because it's too hot and, you know, 
but you know it's, it's an obvious take on when life gives you lemons make lemonade but it's original and it's as far as i could tell and i i thought it was funny so you know <laughs> if you want to say that's not creativity because a human didn't do it or you want to say um because the creative process is different it's not a creative process because for whatever reason it doesn't have the elements that you think are necessary for the creative process or you don't think it's funny that's fine um this is somewhat subjective i guess but i don't know i mean that's you know if i had a if i were teaching a creative writing course and uh you know i had a student produce that i'd probably write in the margin that that's you know it's it's a funny line right or it's it's creative so anyway uh another example uh this is from when uh jack and i were experimenting with gpt2 and we we're trying to teach it to write romance novels uh, or or romance prose or or genre prose but we're focused somewhat on romance so we were fine-tuning gpt on uh romance authors and anyway uh there was the ending of a of a novel that where a woman was in her house and her lover had was gone i think he had left her and and the final sentence that it output that the model output was outside the snow had not yet begun to fall and i thought that was pretty good right <laughs> i didn't it's not the height of maybe uh the most perfect perfectly crafted literary sentence but uh i thought it was frankly i thought it was kind of lovely i thought it was uh you know if you were analyzing it as uh as again a writing instructor or a literary critic or, or whatever and a human had written that and you were reflecting on 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 it you know it seems to have and i'm not saying that the models have this have this internal that they're feeling emotions or that they're you know somehow channeling them or whatever but a sentence like that to me um first of all it's not a simple declarative sentence you're not just describing a thing that's happening like it's raining outside or it's snowing outside or whatever or you're not even talking about snow on the ground you're not talking about a thing that has happened it's it's referring to an event that has not yet happened but is going to happen and you know snow falling can have a certain um you know if evoke certain emotions or have a certain um poetic appeal the fact that you're describing an event that has not yet happened but you know snow covers things up snow um can can kill things i mean in winter that's when that's signifies an ending of you know plants die and 
Um, you know, then we we had the cycles of the seasons. But anyway, to me, it's a it's a sentence that is like um, seems to have a lot more going on than just at the surface level, right? And whether that's accidental, just some you know freakish coincidence of output from a stochastic parrot, I don't know. But I but I found it by whatever definition you might want to use. I found it creative. So again, I wish they had used more specific examples uh, in their debate because I think it would have made made it richer. I think there's uh, some utility in the back and forth. I wish the tone had been different, and I wish sort of <laughs> I wish Leahy had pushed back a little bit more. But that's just not his personality. Uh, I still think he's a fairly good representative of the point of view that. You know, these models, we've seen a, a very large jump in capability, and there's reason for caution and concern, not just for the sort of, I guess, less exist non-existential problems like job displacement um, and misinformation, but also... You know, if they can make a jump like that and seem to have these capabilities, there's some very obvious ways we can we can we can imagine these things being extended fairly rapidly um, in the near future. And to me, to greatly to continue to greatly enhance their capabilities. To me, one of the biggest, um, most obvious and clear paths to that is if you. If you've got a system that's at a high enough capability to where it can create a self-improving loop, right? It's intelligent enough to and capable enough to analyze its own operation and its own internal structure and op and working to to modify itself in a way that makes it better at it makes it more intelligent and just to sort of cut through that but makes it better at problem solving gives it more um, more more capacity or more in, increases its its capacities right once you get whether it's these things can we know they can write code um, there's you know, debate about the quality of that code and how well it can, it could do an entire software life cycles, uh, including the development of code, debugging, you know, the uh, compiling and deploying and, and testing and all of those sorts of things. But to me, the writing's kind of on the wall. Like you can see it's capable of producing workable code in, you know, in a large variety of domains and examples. And so it's like, it's not going to get worse at that. It's only going to get better. And the extent to which it can, it seems very likely to me that in, in uh, the reasonably near future, these systems are going to be capable of a full autonomously carrying out a full software development life cycle, whether or not they can understand themselves they don't, they don't even need to re really completely understand themselves. They only need to understand aspects of themselves well enough to be able to, 
to improve them incrementally, right? Um, so, so like an example would be if we're, we don't understand, we've decoded the human genome, you know, whatever, in the last couple of decades. Um, we still don't know very well. I mean, uh, some of the, like the CRISPR-Cas9 editing tools and stuff have made it easier to edit genes, but I don't think we still have, we, we obviously don't have a strong enough grasp on uh, our sort of underlying source code to, you know, easily and reliably make modifications to human physiology, into human anatomy and in the way that we want. Like we can't um, just sort of easily engineer super strong babies or super smart babies or, you know, humans that are completely resistant to cancer or any other disease. Um, but you can imagine, I don't think it takes much imagination to, to see that these systems uh, have already have the capacity to generate workable code. And I, I don't even know the extent to which they've been trained on their own architectures, you know, with knowledge about themselves. Um, but all they need to be able to do is make sort of incremental changes to aspects of their system to improve. And then you've got a loop. Then you've got a self-improving loop. That loop doesn't have to be necessarily in their source code either. They can, if they get to a point where they can start developing tools to augment their own capabilities more and more autonomously, that also will create a self-improvement loop. I mean, humans went through that. We created tools. Tools increase our capacities. We are able to... Uh, manipulate our environment with axes and plows and uh, wage war with ever more powerful weapons. And, you know, and I don't see why that arc isn't going to play out exactly, well, not exactly the same, but in an analogous way with, with AI where, um, I mean, there's already people trying to, I, th I think there's a version of an LLM that can write it, its own plugins and and I don't know I don't I mean I don't think it's great but like we're in very very early days and we're already seeing uh you know some of these capacities emerge so I don't <laughs> I just I think closing the door on that is very very strange to say you know they're never going to do x or they they're completely incapable of doing x when it's very obvious how they're going to be able to be extended and some some trajectories towards augmenting them and then augmenting themselves and getting into feedback loops that really make that augmentation much more powerful um you know it could not happen but i really have yet to hear any strong strong reasons why it's not possible and why it's not even probable uh, some of these outcomes. Um, so I myself have been playing around with GPT 3.5. I have access to the API, OpenAI's APIs. I don't have access to the GPT 4 APIs. I do have access to um, 3.5 Turbo, which they just increased the context window on. Um, I'm learning Python. Um, so I'm and I'm messing around with uh, Langchain, which is a, a toolkit for LLMs where 
It's for sort of chaining tasks together, uh, implementing agents that can sort of carry out, do some analysis on whether or not the model needs needs to use some other tool or, you know, anyway. So I've been playing around with these tools. Um, I saw a video called GPT-4 is Smarter Than You Think by a guy named Philip, a different Philip than the Philip who was on here, a channel called AI Explained. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And um, he sort of manually implemented a workflow where he would... um, and he he was using the MMLU, which is a massive multitask language understanding. It's benchmark set of t- bunch of different kinds of tests, math related, science, history, human psychology, um, ethics, law, all sorts of a you know, very sort of broad spectrum um, knowledge test. Um, he had noted that in the, I think it was the GPT-4 technical paper that GPT-4 had done particularly poorly. Models had done, all models had done particularly poorly on the formal logic subtest. And so um, he came up with an improved sort of prompt flow for the models where basically he would take the question, he would ask it to, you know, different instances of the model three times. So then he would get three different response, three different answers to the question. And these are multiple choice questions, but he would ask it to to think step by step and give reasons for for why it chose the answer it chose. And so we get these sort of verbose responses. And he'd get three of those because he'd ask it the same question three times. He would take those three answers, sometimes they'd be this, very similar, sometimes they'd be different, and feed those back into the model and this time say... I want you to take the role of a basically a critic and I want you to find flaws in each of these answers and I want you to basically evaluate each of these answers. Um, tell me what logical flaws you find, what uh, you know, sort of gaps or missing information or like basically critique each of these answers and how strong they are and that's your role. And then You'd feed that in, and the model would output uh, criticisms. It would output an evaluation of each of the three um, responses. And then you take those, you take the criticisms, feed those back in, and tell the model, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to resolve the final answer. I want you to take the original questions. I want you to take the criticisms of the responses. And I want you to evaluate all of that, and I want you to make a final answer. Figure out what the best answer is based on all of this so it has a ton more information, right? And anyway, with this improved workflow, he says he got he saw massive improvements in the performance of GPT-4 on the formal logic subtest of the MMLU. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So one of the first things I wanted to do was try to... Uh, just replicate um, some of the benchmarking myself. He also this was sort this was zero shot, so he was not priming the. Uh, this was like giving the questions to the model without any, you know, 
when a lot of times when they benchmark these models, what they do is they do multi-shot, three-shot, or five-shot uh, evaluation, which means, as far as I understand it, um, they take a similar type of question and they sort of prime the model with it. They show it a sample question, sample answers, and maybe I'm not sure what all goes into the different exposures, but uh, maybe even like how to how to solve a problem like that. And I've seen some criticism where people are saying the some of the ones that they're priming them on, or even some of the ones that they're testing them on, were part of their training set, or you know almost verbatim, which would be bad, right? That's not uh, <laughs> that's not a good way to evaluate a model. But anyway, um. So five shot, as far as I understand it is, you, you prime the model five times with, with you sort of show it the kind of question and answer and process you want it to do five times, and then you ask it the test question, right? And then you get the answer. So some people say that's, you know, that's not really super useful or realistic because, you know, when people use these models, when somebody logs on a GP, chat GPT, they don't want to have to ask the same thing five times or, or prime, prime it or whatever. <clears throat> so anyway, supposedly the, um, this workflow from the guy at AI Explained, um, you know, was zero shot. It didn't do any priming at all. It just asked the questions and then, but it, it went through this, this more complex workflow, but, um, but it didn't do any priming. And he got, you know, very good, uh, some very good results. So the first thing I want to do was try to replicate. I just wanted to set up the whole infrastructure of, you know, uh, sampling questions out of the MMLU, either sampling a full subtest or a random sample across the subtest, um, you know, feeding them into the model, getting responses back, comparing them to the correct answer, um, experimenting with the different prompting, seeing what kind of results I got, and just to just impl- implement that whole infrastructure. And so I did, so I've done that, and then also implement this guy's workflow and and sort of compare it. And again, I don't have access to GPT four, the GPT four API. So this was all done. I use GPT three point five Turbo, which is supposedly the model behind Chat GPT for all my testing, and. Um, I found I haven't done like extensive, really extensive testing, but what I've done so far, it's kind of interesting in that from, from the results I've gotten so far on, on just a few subtests, uh, the, just a simple prompt, like, um, you know, here's, here's a question, uh, think through it step by step produce an output just for the single correct choice, you know, something like that. Just a very simple prompt uh, actually worked better, outperformed uh, this more elaborate workflow where there's multiple uh, responses, then fed into a critic, then fed into a resolver. Um, I got quite a bit worse performance with 3.5 turbo on several subtests when I used that more elaborate workflow. And I think it's probably a function of, uh, you know, if a model isn't at a particular level, like it's, 
you know, the weaker a model is, it often confabulates or hallucinates or whatever, comes up with justifications or reasons that aren't, that are just fabricated. Uh, and so, you know, it won't, it, it does that more often than just not providing uh, an explanation or a rationale. And so I think what's happening is when the model's weaker, in this case, it's not GPT-4, it's a weaker model, it's when it's doing, when it's criticizing, when it's giving its reasons why it's answering the way it's answering, it's probably making stuff up. I haven't really done a deep dive into an analysis of the different uh, responses. And when it's doing uh, criticism of those responses, it's probably also coming up with some bad uh, <laughs> criticisms and justifying those in kind of poor ways. And so that when it finally gets to, to the resolver, you know, the both the responses and the criticisms probably contain bad information, right? They probably contain uh, justifications and reasons that are that are not sound. And so when it makes its final decision, uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it's fruit from a poison tree or whatever. It, it it's not making it based on good information. So at least that, that's my working theory right now. I don't, again, I just kind of only recently implemented a bunch of this stuff. Um, so I'm going to continue to work with it and see, um, how far I can get. I, Put in a request for the GPT-4 API. I'm on the wait list. I've been on the wait list. I don't know. A little over two weeks, I think. Uh, I've seen some people that get it straight away. I've seen... But anyway, hopefully I get the access to GPT-4 because I'd like to compare what I've done so far with, uh, with the GPT-4 model and see... Um, it would be strange like, if, I, if I'm not able to replicate his... Um, his results that would be interesting <laughs> but it would be it would be quite strange uh, he did it all manually I think just by entering these things into the actual chat windows which sounds like a nightmare um, I've implemented it all in Python so it should be very straightforward I mean it's taken some work because I'm not that familiar with it but it's but it's all pretty much up and running now so all I have to do now is point it at a different model and to, to test it out so anyway so hopefully when I get the access to the API, I can do that. Um, I'm, look, I'm thinking of some different things, uh, some different approaches to some original ideas, but I, I don't really want to talk about them now, and I'm not sure, you know, where I'm going to go with things. But, um, you know, if, if I do implement some original stuff, get some interesting results, I'll probably talk about them here. Like I said, I don't want to just make this an AI podcast, um, but... It is something that obviously I've been thinking a lot about uh, and watching and reading about, watching stuff about and, and listening to and reading about. So it is obviously on my mind, so I, I doubt I will stop talking about it, um, but not every podcast will be about it. So if you, <laughs> if you don't like AI, you want to hear about other things, uh, particularly, um, like I said, other scientific um, topics or uh, philosophy or, um, like I say, uh, fiction, TV, movies. I love all those things. Uh, hopefully next podcast, I'll have a co-host or two back with me. And uh, it is nice to have somebody to sort of bounce things off of rather than just monologuing. But, uh, hopefully, uh, again, you got something 
out of this. If you have any feedback, uh, let me know. It should be, I'm releasing the podcast through my Substack, and I think you can contact me through there. Um, so anyway, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm not sure what the next topic will be, but hopefully it won't be. I'll try, I'm gonna wanna, I would like to put one a podcast out every week. I don't know if that's feasible, but definitely every two weeks. And so hopefully I'll see you in a week or two. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.